Hello and welcome to Life's Dirty Little Secrets. I'm Emma Waddington, a clinical psychologist, usually based in Singapore, but today I'm in Spain. And I'm Chris McCurry in Seattle, Washington, also a clinical child psychologist. And today's topic is less a dirty little secret and more sort of a counterintuitive thing, gaining by subtracting. And our esteemed guest is Lydie Clocks, who is a professor at the University of Virginia with appointments in engineering, architecture, and business. He's the author of a, a couple of books. One's called Sustainability Through Soccer, having been a professional soccer player with the Pittsburgh Riverhounds. But his most recent book is Subtract, the Untapped Science of Less. Please welcome uh, Lydie Klotz. Good to have you here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Emma. This will be fun. So, subtracting. What is that? And uh, why on earth would that be useful compared to gaining? I think, I mean, it's basically one of our options that we have whenever we're trying to change something from how it is to how we want it to be. And so I think it would be great if every time we thought about gaining, we could think, ask ourselves whether taking away might be just as good of an option or even a better option. But it seems like from the research and from looking around in the world that we, we often overlook this this whole class of options to make our, make our lives, make our world better. So when you say a class of options, you're, you're not just talking about one or two particular behaviors, but you're uh, sort of a mindset almost. Yeah. Mindset. And also just, I mean, you could think about this in, I, I think about it in three kind of ways, like physical things, right? You're trying to improve the, your living room. Right. And, uh, you can add furniture or you can get rid of some of the clutter or social situations, right? You're trying to improve how your day is going to go and you can add meetings or remove meetings and then ideas, right? You've got the the thoughts that are in your head and you can continue to try to scaffold new information on top of old, but you can also kind of question what you already think and, and remove. So that's what I mean by a class of options. It's, it's, you know, and it, it's just one of the most basic ways that we can change things. So that's why it's a problem if we're not fully considering it. And some of the research that you cite in your book talks about how difficult it is to see subtracting as an option. Can you talk mm -hmm. more about that research? Yeah. And that's some research that I did with collaborators. But I mean, I'll start with the punchline, which is that it's not just that we think about subtraction and deliberately consider it and then decide, nah, I'd rather add. I mean, we certainly do that sometimes, but even before that, if we don't even think about subtraction as an option, right? So I'll give you an example. One of the experiments that we ran to show this, there was a, a grid pattern that we would give people. And the grid pattern was basically broken up into four quadrants and the people were tasked with making the pattern symmetrical from left to right and top to bottom. And there were extraneous marks in one of the quadrants. So basically you can make this pattern symmetrical by adding blocks to three quadrants or by subtracting blocks from one quadrant. And subtracting blocks was the easier way to do it, was the, the shorter way to do it. 
and we challenge people to do it in the, the shortest way possible. And yet people still would think, okay, I'm going to make this symmetrical by adding blocks to the three columns. And then they would do that and move on without, without considering whether subtraction may have been a good option. In this case, it, it objectively was. Like if you asked the people afterwards, you said, hey, look, <laughs> did you consider taking away blocks? And they'd be like, oh no, that was definitely the better option. And I just didn't, didn't think of it. So if you, the thinking process that's happening is we have these, you know, mental shortcuts, as you know, and your listeners know, and, and one of them seems to be that when we try to make something better, we first think about what we can add and then sometimes just add and move on without considering the subtractive option. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. We we have our, our rules, both explicit and implicit. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of this stuff is deeply ingrained. And in your, in your book, you talk about where this came from in terms of evolutionary biology and survival value. Can, can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. And I think, I mean, again, as your listeners know, I mean, I, there's no kind of single explanation for any behavior, right? But it's, you can certainly look and see, okay, what are, what from our biology might be pushing us in this direction. And one is just this desire to acquire things, right? It's been a advantageous behavior to acquire food, to, to stockpile supplies. And that's been something that's helped us pass down our genes. One that's was more surprising to me, but maybe more relevant, I think, to my daily life when I find myself adding is uh, just this just this desire to show that we can effectively interact with the world. And so one of the examples I use in the book is uh, bowerbirds. So those are the, the male bowerbirds build a nest and then the female bowerbirds go and look at the nest and decide which bowerbird to mate with based on the nests, which all sort of making sense so far. Then... However, the female bowerbird goes and builds a nest to raise the young. So the whole purpose of the first nest is just to show that this bird can effectively move sticks around in the world. And that is something that, you know, psychologists talk about as competence or displaying competence. And it's been extended to completion of tasks in, you know, that aren't physical. So when I you know, when it, when you check something off your to-do list, right, that is displaying competence. When you go to a meeting, that makes you feel like you're displaying competence. And all of that is fine, but often when you subtract something, you've done something, you've, you've displayed competence, but there's no evidence for it, right? So that could be another kind of biological reason why the, why this is something that comes to mind more quickly, why adding comes to mind more quickly. Well, we get that little squirt of dopamine when yeah, there's that yeah. Check check something off our to do list, mm-hmm. but but it's really true. It's uh, you know when when someone says how are you doing, you know we want to say oh I'm really busy, yeah, you know because that, that proves we're still you know alive and relevant. Mm-hmm. And, and having just retired from my clinical practice, people say oh how's retirement? I I feel the search to oh, but I, but I'm still like doing stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm I got a, I have a podcast. Yeah, and, uh, and uh, I'm not dead yet. So yeah, there's something very deep and primal about showing that competence. And you know, as you point out, you know, acquiring 
proves that that we're mm-hmm. yeah it's, we, have uh, va- we have value to the tribe yeah there, i have heard of some like i haven't like there are cultures where it's you do brag about how unbusy you are right like like i think italy sometimes especially a few generations ago it was like a, a status thing to be able to be like well yeah i'm not I don't work. I think I just like go on vacation all the time, but certainly, um, yeah, certainly all the people that I'm around, you've got to be talking about how busy you are. And I was, I was thinking about how you mentioned in the book, the piece around cognitive load. Fascinating. That when we have this cognitive load, it's even harder. Could you sort of talk a bit about that? Cause I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing that up. I think so the reason that we looked at cognitive load in our experiments is because if if this is a heuristic, if this is like a something that's wired into us, a mental shortcut, then the theory would be if you were under increased cognitive load, you'd be even more likely to rely on this heuristic, right? Because you just have less time to think and um, or less energy to think, less effort to think. So like one of the experiments that we did that grid that I just described, we would also give that to people while asking them to, there would be a scroll of numbers going across the bottom of the screen. And every time a five went by, they had to press an F. So basically you're texting and driving or <laughs> you're distracted as predicted or as, as we, yeah, as predicted, people became even more likely to add in that situation. They're even more likely to overlook subtraction when they were under cognitive load. So again, that's like evidence that it's a heuristic, but then practically it's like the, the very thing that we need when we're, when we're overloaded is to subtract often, but yet when we're overloaded becomes the time when we're, we're least likely to think about it. And that's, you know, something that I experience in my parenting, for example, right? You're just trying to like survive day to day and, and muddle through and so what you need to do is take a step back and be strategic, but it's, you know, you just don't have the time. So it's, a, it's, it can be like a reinforcing cycle that, you know, not being overloaded cognitively makes you more likely to add, which makes you more likely to be overloaded cognitively, which makes you more likely to add. It makes so much sense. It kind of explains why stress can mount. I was thinking mm-hmm. about, you know, talking about parenting, I was thinking of a really clear example, adding when I needed to subtract with my firstborn, I am um, at the time, which is about 13 years ago, there was a nanny called Gina Ford. I think she was British. She never made it across the ocean. Anyway, she had this incredibly rigid schedule that went by minutes. Wow. And everybody was doing it. And I had four months old and I decided I needed to do it. It was going to be the answer to all my problems. Mm-hmm. Exactly what to do with him and when to feed him and when he'd be tired, all of this. So I remember trying to implement it and struggling and getting frustrated. And the next day I'd try again. And there was a particular window that I struggled with, which was the bedtime window. Mm -hmm. And after the third day of being so overwhelmed with this, my husband turned around and said, have you actually looked at what it's telling you to do? And I said, well, yeah, of course I'm doing it. I'm trying, but I'm failing. He <laughs> said, because it's expecting you, for those of us who have parents will understand this more clearly, but it was expecting me to, in the in 45 minutes, to feed him, 
bathe him, feed him, and put him into bed. And I could hardly make it into the bed, the the bath time before I'd mm-hmm. already lost the forty five minute window. Yeah. But my brain couldn't conceive of the fact that it was unrealistic. It just couldn't. Mm-hmm. The assumption was that I was doing something wrong. And the more stressed I got, the more determined I was that I was going to make this work. And I couldn't take a step back and look at this sort of lunacy. Only my husband, who obviously got it in the neck, and I tried again <laughs> until I, <laughs> I finally felt defeated by this. But mm-hmm. it, it kind of when resonated this cognitive load because I was so stressed and you know sleep deprived, generally deprived of many other things too, as you do when you have a baby. Yeah. And for the life of me, I thought I was trying to solve a problem, mm-hmm. but I was actually creating a bigger problem. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Totally. Still experiencing that with an eight-year-old and a four-year-old in my house. So I just try, <laughs> it's like, oh, this just isn't going to work. So that's a great example. Yeah. The, and a number of years ago, Shauna Shapiro, the uh, mindfulness person, was up here uh, giving a talk and she told a story about, you know, she's big on mindfulness and, and she's very famous and all that. And she was coming back from some trip that she'd taken to a conference and she hadn't spent a lot of time with her, her son, who was, I think, about nine years old at the time. So she planned this fabulous day that we're going to go to the beach and that we're going to do all these things. And she's getting ready to go and she's hustling him out the door and getting all the stuff. And he's standing outside looking at the ground and she's saying, come on, come on, let's go. I have this great day plan. And uh, he's looking at bugs that are on the ground. And after a couple of minutes of trying to get him into the car, she just stopped and got down on the ground with him. And they looked at bugs for the next 45 minutes because that's what he wanted. And she had this plan and she had to just recognize that she had, she had to you know match him and be in sync with him. And I think, you know, what Emma was describing is Jim being in sync with her child, that mm-hmm. you can't force them to, you know, get out of their own rhythm or, you know, what, what's going to work for them. And I think, you know, the subtraction thing is, is I think part of that idea of, you know, sometimes we call it context to sensitivity mm-hmm. or being aware of the situation and, and then matching our, our responses to that. Hmm as opposed to being rule governed. One of the great things about having kids is you get to see the world through their eyes. And, you know, I have vivid experiences of my kids noticing a bug that I probably have walked by a million times and never noticed and and just sat there and watched it. So that's a, yeah, that's a cool example. One of our studies when we, um, we were suspicious of this, this, tendency that we have to just like pack our calendars, but we were trying to make studies where people would actually take things away. And so we made this ridiculous day trip itinerary that we showed people. It was in Washington, DC. And I think that was either 12 or 14 different things that they were going to do in Washington, DC in a single day. And these were like big things like go to the Smithsonian Museum, visit the Lincoln Memorial, have lunch at a five-star bistro. There's this drag and drop interface that we showed them. And so they could take things off of their task list or add things onto their task list. And by and large, people added to that day to try to make it even better. And it would just be the most, so obviously be be the most miserable day, but it was just, you know, people were scared of missing opportunities, I think. Well, it's the whole 
kid in a candy store. Yeah. It's this whole FOMO, isn't it? Yeah. I love that yeah. word. That's sort of fear of missing out. And it's just so true. And that sort of, I guess, is, is about us being part of the tribe and keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, never missing a beat. And I think about at the moment with all the social media, there's all these more, there's the greater opportunities to keep comparing. Mm-hmm. And whether that means that, you know, the, this tendency of us to add versus subtract, mm-hmm. being fed even more. Well, yeah, that's interesting. Well, I've certainly worked with a lot of teenagers who couldn't get any sleep because they had to be on their phones 24-7 for fear of missing out on some Isabel's latest text about, you know, her boyfriend or, you know, Bradley's latest little, you know, video or something like that. And, and they were terrified. I mean, absolutely terrified of missing out on something and then being you know, socially out of it the next day at school. Yeah. It's a hard, hard challenge with so much information available now. Right. I mean, those are examples where it's like, okay, clearly you don't need that. But also even just when you think about trying to learn as much as possible, right. Or trying to, even if what you're doing is, is consuming like very useful information, your brain still needs time to just process, right. To, to be working on these ideas without, just getting inundated with new information. So it is a huge missed opportunity there. Well, tomorrow we'll be talking to someone about the imposter phenomenon. And that really feeds into this idea of, I don't know enough, I have to know more. Mm -hmm. This relentless, you know, sense of incompetence and it's uh, crazy making. Yeah. But there's also a, a, there's a resistance to, to, subtraction. I know in one of your podcasts, you talked about loss aversion. In in psychology, we talk about reactance, which is the phenomenon whereby people get defensive when they're told they can't have something or they can't do something. Mm. And it shows up in, in medical practice when, you know, physician has to tell somebody that, you know, you can't do X anymore, you can't eat Y anymore. I had a medical procedure done a number of years ago, and they sent me a list of all the foods I couldn't eat two days before the exam. And it was suddenly those were my favorite things to eat in the world. <laughs> of course. So, you know, there's, there's this, you know, and that's probably biological going back to our, you know, evolutionary heritage where, you know, I, I just, I just can't do that. It's a visceral reaction to the idea of loss or, or mm-hmm. giving something up. Yeah, the um, I mean, loss aversion is obviously Kahneman and Tversky showing that we are basically twice as disappointed to lose something as we are to to gain something of the same value. So this, you know, that ties into what we're talking about. Once you once you think about subtraction, there are still barriers to actually following through with it, right? So if you're deliberately considering it and you're focused on Maybe it's, you know, to go back to that text example, because, okay, there is some that the kids looking at their phone example, you know, they're worried about losing, seeing that text and that looms larger than the potential gain, which is like, Hey, I've got some free time to, or free mental capacity or five more minutes of sleep or or whatever the potential gain is. So if you're, 
the, the, the trick there is like how you're categorizing these things. If you're focused on the loss, if you're thinking about the, the not having the text as a loss, it's going to feel like it's a lot, but if you can sometimes get around that, if you can focus on like, okay, what is it that I'm getting here? And I mean, this is a, not a super highbrow example, but Marie Kondo, like her, her tidying wisdom, right? So she's the, the home guru, home tidying guru. And one of the things that she does to get people to, to clean up is to say, okay, envision your new space, right? Like here's, here's what your space is going to look like. And now she's famous enough that people kind of know what a tidied space looks like. So it's like, okay, that's the thing, right? And that's the thing that you're going to lose if you don't follow through instead of the thing that you're losing is the t-shirt that you haven't worn for five years that you're going to get rid of. So kind of flipping, not focusing on the, sp- the little things that you're losing and instead focusing on the big thing that you're gaining can be one way to make sure that like subtracting doesn't get caught up in that loss aversion. I have a Marie Kondo example. <laughs> oh, you do? It's, it was just making me think about the loss aversion. So I have a friend of mine who's always into the latest thing, introduced me to Marie Kondo. And this was after having my third. And so my house was a mess. And I remember her cot was in our room. And I said, that's it. I'm clearing out the bedroom. I'm just going to make this happen. And I spent the whole afternoon and I filled the cot with my belongings and my clothes. And I stuck them all in a black bag. And I felt a huge sense of mastery looking at my empty cupboards. And then without missing a beat, I got rid of it. I went and I just gave it away and came back home and felt incredibly proud. And then two weeks later, I was like, where are my clothes? Oh, I have nothing to wear. I have nothing. This is a terrible idea. And, and so I kind of reflected on this incredibly impulsive left to which it had been. And I remember she has a line in the book that says, you have to ask yourself if this item gives you joy. Right. And I was looking at all these items and saying, none of you give me joy. Mm-hmm. I'm done with all of you. And I just got the whole lot out and felt fabulous and then regretted it. And so when I was <laughs> reading, you know, this loss aversion concept, I had lots of it because I went mm-hmm. too far. Mm-hmm. And I also didn't really think about meaning and the reason why. Mm -hmm. And I think that's part of this conversation around subtracting is that there needs to be a context in which it will be better once you've subtracted. It's not just a simple act of subtracting. It's the outcome at the end of it. So life is better, easier, smoother, more fun. Obviously, cleaning up your room is maybe not the most clearest example of a value as such, but that perhaps I was following a rule no, I was definitely following, which was mm-hmm. to the give me joy rule in that moment. So it's, it's, I guess it's, it's this loss aversion also has a part to play. It's important too. Oh yeah. If we're losing something important, we need to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. People will always be like, Hey, Lydie, should, what should I subtract and what shouldn't I subtract? And I say, I don't know. Like the, the thing that gives you clarity on that is the the vision or, you know, what's, what's the goal here. And I think that's, that is what gives us the guidance on what should, when we should add, when we should take away. And I'm happy if people are considering (laughs) subtracting as one of their options, which I think is a big 
big step forward, but then to, to know what's right, what the, what the right choice in, in any given situation is to have, have that, have that really clear vision of where you want to go. So one of the podcasts that I was listening to that you had done, you were talking about using analogies in, in order to, uh, as you said, to understand and let go. Can you say more about the use of analogies? Because the kind of therapy that Emma and I have been trained in uses a lot of metaphor and a lot of analogies in order to get kind of past that thinking thing. You know? Yeah. But, well, I don't, you're probably going to do a better job explaining it than I am. But I, yeah, I'm glad you brought it up. So I think, uh, you know, this is getting into the mental part of it, right? And one of the analogies comes up in the book, because I'm talking about how, how it's really hard to get rid of something that we currently think, right? And so there's this classic psychology study where this psychologist joins a doomsday cult, right? And it's a brilliant idea because he joins the cult. So he's covered in both ways. Like he's, if, if the, if the doomsday actually comes, he's in, in, but if it doesn't come, he's got this fascinating case study of what happens when, when you're presented with evidence that clearly conflicts with your mental model. So these are all people who believe the doomsday is coming. And then, you know, they're, he got a grant for this. I don't know if he got a grant for it, if he just did it on his own, but it's, um, so he's waiting with them on the night of the doomsday and like 12 o'clock hits. And then they start debating what's the official clock of the doomsday. So it's like, oh, maybe it's just like this, that clock's five minutes ahead or whatever. And then, you know, so nothing happens after five minutes. And then they're just kind of sitting there in silence till four in the morning. And then the doomsday cult leader says, hey, look, our faith has staved off the cult. And it's like this classic example of, you know, how we rather than change our ideas when we're presented with conflicting evidence, we just kind of like distort the whole model instead. And I mean, another example of this, so my son believes in Santa Claus still, he's eight. And, but this example comes from even when he believed even more, I think now he might just believe because he knows that his parents give him more presents, but but the, but so yeah, he, so he gets Legos for, for Christmas. And then he goes to me, he's like, how'd Santa give me Legos? And I said, what do you mean? You asked for Legos. And he said, oh no, well, Santa just, I thought he just had like the wood workshop and I didn't know he had the capacity to like make Legos. And I said, oh, oh, for Legos, like Santa, he just works directly with Amazon. And so my son was like, great. That's, you know, (laughs) I've got this new information. Now it squares with two things that I knew and I'm happy I'm moving forward in life. And so it's really hard to just subtract an obviously wrong idea, even when we're presented with information and, and analogies can help with that because the way the analogy works are, is that it kind of ties into something you already know in your brain about how the, how the world works and then kind of lumps the new information in with that. And it can help you have a more accurate mental model. So and again, I'll give you an opportunity to fill in what I'm missing here in the clarity. But the so one one example would be like when when students are learning about how this is that's a bad example. Well, electrons orbiting around like the the, the center of a molecule, right? So when when you're learning about that, like drawing an analogy between that and planets orbiting the sun, like that's helpful for 
having kids understand obviously they need to have the understanding of the electrons first but having them understand how the how the planets work right so because it's you're instead of fighting existing information with new information you've got existing information in in the form of the analogy plus the new information against some other existing information and you can have a little bit more success with that how does it work in in your practice well as i said we use a lot of metaphors a lot of analogies and so one that comes to mind i try to borrow as much from kid culture as i can in the work that I do or did. And in in the movie Kung Fu Panda, the one of the characters tells the the young student to be the center of the cyclone, where you could be that calm center, even oh, though okay. things are yeah, swirling yeah. all around you. And I could I could see that as being applicable to this, you know, in terms of, you know, imagining what living room would look like as a calm center even though the the world around you is is like chaotic and swirling you could create that space and 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 feel that 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 sense of of calmness even though things are swirling all around you even internally to be to find a place where even though your your mind is racing or you're feeling stressed out that that you could find a, a certain peaceful core to operate from yeah, I think internally, especially. Yeah, that's a really great one. That makes sense. And just thinking about this idea of metaphors, when I think of mental health in general, so much is about adding and not subtracting. Like mm. if I think of, you know, when we're really struggling, it's we mostly are overwhelmed with too many unhelpful things that we're doing, mm-hmm. and and yet we're struggling with it without. There's one one metaphor that is uh, very well known in our sort of acceptance and commitment therapy, which is the main model we use, which is the which is usually used around anxiety. The idea is that you're stuck when when we are feeling sort of overwhelmed with anxiety, we tend to struggle a lot to try mm-hmm. and get out of it, and it's like being in quicksand. Mm-hmm. And the more we struggle with it, the more you move, having never been in quicksand, I still know what that must be like and feel. Mm. You know, you start to feel like you're sinking and that just makes you struggle even more, which makes you sink even deeper. And thinking about the addition versus subtraction when we when we are in that very stressed, overwhelmed place, which, you know, if we're struggling in, in our lives, we do tend to think about more and not less. And if I think about the kind of model that we practice, we try and simplify instead of create more complexity in the way we're seeing our lives. We try to sort of sort of help people to think more about the essence of what's happening, you know, what's actually happening versus what our mind is telling us is happening. Because often when our mind is talking to us, our mind will be saying, add, add. you've got to study harder, you've got to go to the gym more, you've got to, whatever it is, it's usually adding is the solution. Yeah. When I was in my like early twenties, I like had obsessive compulsive stuff, but just like the thinking kind where it was like, okay, here's this problem and there's no solution to it, but my brain is going to keep trying to find the solution to it. And, you know, it works great if there's a solution, but if there's no solution, which, you know, most things, there's not like one solution, 
it kind of just spins. And so the, the, you know, the way to break that in addition to Zoloft is to uh, have, you know, accept that you're not, there's not an answer. Right. And it's, so it is like stripping down to the essence. And I know that's just, you know, one example and everybody's different in how they would be treated for different things, but that was definitely a case where this, you know, this spiraling of, of overwhelm where you're trying to, you think that the only way you can do this is to figure it out. And part of it is just like letting it go. Well, it is counterintuitive. And, and one of the other metaphors that we often use in, in this work is those finger traps, you know? Oh yeah. And, yeah. uh, the, the, the harder you pull, the tighter, you know, you, you're stuck and mm -hmm. they, the, the only way to get out of it is to actually, you know, move in, you know, move your fingers toward each other and then you can slip out of it. But yeah, yeah one I, thing I, that I've, oh, sorry, go ahead. Keep going. No, go ahead. Well, one thing that I've done is, and when I go talk to groups is have them just like do a two minute meditation. And it's not because like meditation is the one answer, but it's just like showing them the power of actually calming down your mind. And what I say to them is like, try this and i don't know how you're thinking after we do this but i guarantee you it's going to be different than how you were thinking before we did it and it even the most kind of like hey i'm not a meditator even everybody seems to think that like oh yeah i get it that that changed your mental process and that's just a big big huge subtraction right and it gives you because you're so constantly adding constantly adding constantly adding it gives you a totally different perspective on the world by trying this other approach. Yeah, it's so cool, actually. Just like you, what you just said, because I'm thinking about, med, you know, obviously one of the tools we also have in, in acceptance and in therapy is mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And I've never thought about how a lot of what we do when we're doing mindfulness is really simplifying cues. Mm -hmm. You know, we're just turning down the stimulus. The stimuli, yeah. you might focus on one, be it your breath or, you know, be it what you listen to. You really, and that, I didn't think of it as subtraction, but kind of by narrowing your attention, you're obviously calming your system down, mm -hmm. which will mean that you have access to more, you know, ability to make a choice, mm -hmm. which could include subtracting versus when you've got this cognitive load that includes stress. By subtracting is just horizon. Yeah. yeah. It reminds me of COVID. Yeah. That was when my life was the simplest. Mm -hmm. And I remember when we were, we had a lockdown. Well, I guess everybody in the world down. And we were locked down quite seriously, locked down for a few weeks in Singapore. It was quite conservative approach, and you could only leave the house in twos. Mm -hmm. So we were a family of five. So we couldn't actually all leave together. Yeah. And I think it was a couple of months where this was happening. So, you know, everything was, restaurants were shut, everything was shut. And so it was, you know, twos and twos. So we were in, at home, working from home. The kids weren't at school and we couldn't all go out. Mm -hmm. And I remember the simplicity of life. Mm -hmm. Like there was nothing you could do. Mm -hmm. You just had to hang out. There was a limit to what you could do in our house. Yeah. And I remember our stress level went down. Mm-hmm. You know, paradoxically, when, you know, having less to do could increase your stress, we noticed it was much lower because expectations were really low. You just 
you know, it wasn't much to do. So, you know, there was nothing to rush. If you were bored, you just had to be bored. And I remember us reflecting as a family of, you know, how well we felt. And then as soon as the doors opened, we were out of there. Yeah. You know, back into the thick of everything as if we hadn't learned a single thing. Mm -hmm. uh, it's how old were your kids at that time? Were they? Uh... Yes. Yeah. Three, four years younger. So I've got a 13-year-old, a 10-year-old, and a six-year-old. So I had a two-year-old. Yeah. I feel like we were stressed. Two. <laughs> we with our... Yeah. But we had... The, <laughs> that was the one-year-old. <laughs> I think, I mean, we were like... I think there was like the health concern we were stressed. But then the... But yeah, the daily like trying to accomplish things... Or like trying to get them to the activities. It certainly there were certainly things where it's like, oh yeah, like uh, there's lots of fun stuff to do in our neighborhood that we can walk to, and so yeah, I think that was like the the pandemic's this big force subtraction, and you know, of course, a lot of these things you want to bring back after afterwards, but yeah, it's a missed opportunity if you don't kind of keep the ones that proved to be beneficial when you were forced to see them, I guess. Yeah, we didn't learn anything. We keep talking about that. Oh, man. But yeah. So a few final key points that you'd like to make before we finish off today, Lighty. I, I mean, I think we, you both have done a really good job of drawing out, like, I think the key principles that people can, you know, take take what we've talked about and apply it to their lives. I would, I mean, two things that tend to be helpful or one thing that's helpful is that in addition to like, I mean, right now you're obviously thinking about subtraction, so you can think about things that, hey, I could take these away to make my life better. But also if you can like build this into your process, however that, whatever that looks like, right? So if, if you're a really easy example is if when you're thinking about what you're going to do for the week, can you think about the things you're going to stop doing for the week? Or if you've got people who report to you as employees and in the annual reviews, can you have something where it's like, okay, in addition to your three new initiatives for next year, can you say, here are the three new things that are three things that you're going to stop doing next year? Because, you know, we've seen that two of the problems are right, that we don't think of this and that when we do think of it, it doesn't necessarily show competence or we think that we're not showing competence. But if you, if you can build it into the process, you're going to think of it and you're displaying competence by doing it because you're doing what what you're supposed to do. So that would be kind of one takeaway is to, you know, as you're thinking about it now, think about where can I make subtracting like a regular part of my routine or make considering subtracting a regular part of my routine. I think that could be helpful. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, well, thank like you that. so much. And once again, the book is called Subtract. The uh, Untapped Science of Less by Whitey Clocks. So we very much appreciate you being with us today. Thank you. Oh, for my pleasure. Time. Thanks for having me and thanks for, for sharing these ideas. It was fun. I, I learned a lot too. Thanks so much for tuning into the Life's Dirty Little Secrets podcast. If you have any feedback for us or secrets for future episodes, 
You can email us at lifestudylittlesecretspodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Life's Dirty Little Secrets or on Facebook at Life's Dirty Little Secrets Podcast. We invite you to follow, rate, and review us on wherever you listen to this podcast. It is the best way to get our podcast out in front of new listeners. We'll be back in a couple of weeks with more. See, See you, you then. then.